This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen to it all live, 10 till 1, Monday to Thursday, but we bring you the very best bits. And an absolute cracker today, the extraordinary story of Jiyun Park, who escaped North Korea not once but twice, eventually made her way to the UK, where she's standing for election and the local elections in May this year. She tells me her extraordinary story. Um, You're not going to want to miss that. That's coming up in the episode uh, very shortly. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel telling us what they really think about the news. And it's a Monday, so it must be Liberace. It's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Well, let's start with the story which has just dominated in the last uh, few days. Obviously, uh, the sad death of Sarah Everard, followed by the vigil at the weekend and the Met Police's handling of it, becoming a real sort of political uh, issue. Um, what do you what, first? Of all, what do you make of it? First of all, Libby. Well, I wish to God they hadn't banned the uh, organised demonstration which uh, people had offered to do with COVID marshals, distancing and all the rest. I think the fact that it then became an illegal demonstration put the police in an extraordinarily difficult position. Even so, we know from Janice's piece and indeed from other accounts that it was working okay, quiet and fine and, you know, peaceful through the day. And then and then and then people started getting up, making speeches. It obviously gets invaded by anti-lockdowners and, um, you know, other agitators and anti-vaxxers, apparently. And the whole thing just falls to pieces. And I feel for the police. Um, I think obviously some of them did, did wrong things at the, on the spot. But I don't think Cressida Dick should have to resign over this. I think that's absolutely absurd. Um, and it, it's just it's just all terribly... It's all, it's all come absolutely... At the wrong time, wrong place. The fact that we still have these extreme mm. COVID measures, even with the uh, cases falling so fast, um, it's a mess. But I hope... I mean, I think Cressida Dick is one of the most likely people to sort this out. And I, I still have faith in her. Obviously, Rachel, lots of people feel very strongly on all sides about it. This is one of these issues where 
it's a really difficult thing to know what the right thing to do is because while I have total sympathy for the understanding of people wanted to go and felt like they wanted to do something to remember so ever, the flip side is there have been people who, you know, everyone's been abiding by the rules. The rules are you can't have large gatherings. You know, people have abided by rules and haven't been to see loved ones uh, at the end of their lives because of these coronavirus restrictions. You know, lots of people have had to not do lots of things and maybe not attending a vigil or a protest or whatever it might be is also included in one of those things. So that being the case, then the police have to be seen to be upholding the law. But, but in, then you just get these terrible images. And it's, 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 I feel very conflicted about the whole thing. Mm. I think Libby's right. You know, this could have gone ahead in a COVID-secure way if only it had been properly organised in collaboration with the police rather than then turning into this conflict. I think it was a mistake to completely ban it because there was a plan to have it sort of socially distanced as a vigil very carefully organized with marshals covid marshals from mm. the organizers of the vigil uh and i think it would have been a way for people to pay their respects and the, the i think the he police were heavy-handed with the you know those images of policemen kneeling on the backs of young women is just appalling but i agree with libby actually that i don't think it's something for cressida dick to resign over uh i think she's a person who is best placed to sort it out and actually the lesson from this now we've got to think about what is going to make women safer and somebody resigning or not resigning in a way i think that's a distraction it really should be about you know the government's got this crime and policing bill going through the commons now and there's virtually nothing on it in it that would make a women safer in fact there's more about protecting statues and protecting women in that bill so it's a question of priorities and i think there's a bit of a diversionary tactic going on by some who are just turning this into a blame game and scapegoating cressida dick actually politicians and ministers have got to take responsibility for the law and I suppose that's whenever there is a complicated issue, uh, just settling on, well, let's get someone to resign uh, as if that in any way solves anything or improves things is, is a sort of is where we end up when people, you know, when when all the other options are, are, are difficult. Uh, Libby, let's talk about your column because it, um, in the Times today, because it, it sort of it, 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 it bounces off this issue, but particularly talks about this um, obsession, it seems, in books and TV shows and films of uh, depicting violence against women. Well, depicting violence against women and particularly depicting uh, sort of sexualised violence against women. Uh, glamorous corpses, um, you know, ideally sort of seen alive and very sexy and ideally having sex and then seen on a slab, you know, and the, uh, the perpetrators so often in the tradition of that ghastly Silence of the Lambs film, you know, being so brilliant and clever and character. Oh, I think uh, Libby, Libby's slightly gone there. What do you, th what do you think about this, Rachel? Interesting. I think she's absolutely right. That sense is almost glorifying mm. sexualised violence, isn't it, sometimes? My personal bugbear is also a lot of children's books that are sort of increasingly horror tales and horror stories and, you know, um, vampire novels and things like that. And again, it's a sense of somehow turning horror and violence into something that's entertaining when it isn't. And it creates this culture of violence somehow being acceptable or even exciting 
uh, when, of course, it isn't. One thing that I've, I've really... I think Libby's back with us now. One thing I've really noticed, Lib, Libby, during the, um, uh, during the last few months is when we... I don't know what if it's because there's so much grim stuff going on in the real... Where we've been watching dramas and that sort of thing, where there has been sort of slightly gratuitous, stressful levels of art... Maybe in the past we uh, we might have stayed and watched it. We've just ended up turning it off thinking actually we don't want, you know, there's enough awfulness in the real world. It, it, it's more of a turn off now. I think as long as Jed Mercurio goes on being given awards and OBEs and so on, you know, I think the the casual the casual sadism of it all and the um, you know the the sort of the the excitement, the you know, violence as excitement. I I don't think. I mean, it's it's always been there. I'm just saying that where this sort of uh, this excitement about women being killed is not healthy and it's actually increased if you read and look at um, crime stories you know, and films from, uh, you know, even 30, 40, 50 years ago, there's far less of it. You know, the victim's just as likely to be a man or an old lady, you know, who's made a will or something. But the young, sexy woman must be killed thing is just a, it, it's a kind of, it's an addiction. It may have something to do with a kind of kickback against the fact that women are now in positions of work and power. And, you know, the, the more women advance, the more nervous a certain kind of man gets about it. Um, present company obviously uh, uh, accepted <laughs> there's, there's also isn't there there's a sort of um, somehow a mixture or mixing or blending of sex and violence so that whole culture of Fifty Shades of Grey which actually I haven't read or watched but that sense of somehow women want violence or like violence I think is very degrading and in fact the, um, uh, there was a rebel combination of Labour and Tory Tory rebels and Labour MPs who've got the government to change the law to remove this rough sex defence in um, uh, uh, crime. And that sense that somehow rough sex is okay and that violence is a part of sex, I think is, is, it's, it's seeping dangerously into all kinds of cultural and um, political issues. And it's a real problem. And I suppose it's where it feeds through into real life as well, um, Libby, is that I'm not saying that everybody who watches a, a murder on TV goes out and commits one, but if if attitudes towards women are so ingrained, women in particular are so ingrained in this sort of dare uh, to be used uh, and abused, um, that maybe it's not a surprise um, that, that some men seem to think that it's OK to go out. If, you know, if it's OK on BBC One, maybe it's OK to go and do that on the street. Well, yes, I think that in casual harassment and groping of women, it all comes down to this idea that women's bodies are basically some sort of recreational facility, you know, like a squash court, you know, or a bowling green or whatever, you know, that women are just there to be had and to be used. The idea of individual, the dignity and absolute responsibility, self-responsibility of the human body is something which has to be just dinned into children from the earliest years um, and uh, boys girls everybody you know nobody uh, even women shouldn't say oh nice pair of buns or wouldn't mind a bit of that shouldn't do it neither none of us should do it but humans bodies are not recreational facilities to be picked up casually by people without permission they're just not yeah, but once again, you know, that tackling that and trying to turn that oil tanker will be much more difficult than just calling for someone to resign, which is why it's such a such a difficult uh, issue to grapple with. Uh, let's turn our attention to um, uh, another story. There's quite a lot around today about Scotland. The government announcing overnight they're going to send a thousand um, civil servants to Scotland. 
um, as part of, you know, saving the union. Uh, there's some uh, 500 people from the Foreign Office going to East Kilbride. Uh, then uh, 600... Um, uh, then there's another... There's some, oh, some people going to Glasgow from the Cabinet Office. Um, Boris Johnson is saying that the, the British spirit will see off the SNP. Uh, do you think um, he possibly needs more of a, a slightly firmer plan than that, Rachel? <laughs> yes, definitely. This all looks a bit like sort of desperate um, covering up of a genuine crisis and, you know, little trivial symbols that actually don't re mean very much. And I think there is a real issue after Brexit. The majority of Scots didn't want Brexit. Uh, it was a sort of English nationalist thing. It was uh, There was a majority only in England. Boris Johnson is the worst possible person to argue in favour of the union in Scotland because he's deeply unpopular there. Uh, and I think there's a real risk to the union now and just pretending that it's not a problem, sending a few civil servants saying, no, you can't have another independence referendum just isn't good enough. It's not going to work. And, and there'll just be a, you know, a, that'll just infuriate people even more because it just looks like it's trivialising everything. Uh, yeah, and it, I, I'm, I'm not sure that the idea of having, I don't know, whether it's Chloe Smith or Dominic Raab popping up for an afternoon is necessarily going to um, to uh, change that many people's minds. Uh, Libby, what do you make of this? Well, I last time round, um, I was on a, there was a podcast, there was some kind of Times podcast arguing, and I was the only one who said I thought the Scots were going to vote stay. They were going to vote remain. And it turned out I was right. And I think, <laughs> I don't think Indy Ref 2 will result in a vote to leave. I think that's very frustrating for a lot of serious Scottish nationalists. I can sympathise with them. But I actually think that it, it, it's not going to happen. As for the idea of sending, was it Michael Gove said he wanted to have the engine room of British government should all be in East Kilbride? You know, geographically, this makes a bit less sense than putting it in somewhere like Birmingham, I would have thought. But uh, there you go. I, I, I just think it will fizzle out again. I really do. Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester there. You can read Libby's column on a Monday, Rachel's column on a Tuesday. You just need to get yourself a Times subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Right, up next on the Red Box podcast, the extraordinary story of Ji Park, how she escaped North Korea, and why she's now standing in the local elections in Bury in May this year. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now, we talk a lot about democracy and elections on this show, obviously, when we do politics without the boring bits. But what does democracy really mean to you? Well, to my next guest, it means almost everything. Ji Yun Park uh, grew up in North Korea and escaped the brutal regime of torture and persecution, not once, but twice. She survived and arrived in Britain 13 years ago to build a new life. And now she's standing for election in Bowie in May this year. And she's here to tell me why. Good morning, Gian. Good morning. How, how are you? Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we'll, we'll come to how you find yourself standing for local elections uh, in a moment. But I suppose we should, let's start at the beginning of your story, if you like. Uh, what was it like growing up this is in, in North Korea? For lots of our, our listeners, they'd, they'd have no idea. So, so what's, what's childhood like uh, in North Korea? I have still the vivid memories when I was a child uh, with my friend who played world games. So we usually, one team is North Korean soldiers and, and another team is Americans. But always North Korean soldiers win, you know. Uh, <laughs> so we fight these world games every day uh, in, in, in the evening and the school is the same because we didn't know the, too much uh, about the America and also outside the countries, but we always hated these countries and also South Korean people. So that is my uh, child memories. First, I learned that about the hate. The hate in those other countries. And what, what do you know when you're in North Korea about America or about Britain? Do you know anything at all? I, I knew that is America, but is it, uh, I never watched the America films or never read about the America books. And I didn't know that is America histories. Just only government teach to us. America is enemy uh, our countries and many bigger people, hunger people in outside country. So we believed that. And in Britain, but we never heard that is Britain. We only knew that England. Okay, that was how yes. you, that, that's sort of how you knew it. And in in terms of sort of everyday things, you mentioned not really having toys as a child. But what about uh, food? What's on the TV? You know, going to school. What what was that life experience like? Uh, in North Korea, is one of the distribution country, and government gave to us rice. So every person is a different amount. You know, housewife is 300 grams a day, and the student is 400 grams, university student is 600 grams, and the workers uh, between 700 or 800 grams a day. So government gave to us rice twice a month, and everyone, uh, we have got the rice numbers. So my house is every month, four and 19 is my collections days. So mother went to the, this office and the collections days. So we never knew that is, uh, what you mean is a poor month because we always hunger, you know, we always hunger. And uh, mom is always divided the, our food, you know, when he bring the food and divided the 15 days and also divided the three meals. So they were enough. Oh. And in school is the same. In a in family, in 
in household and all of uh, the public places, we have only two pictures, Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il pictures in school, public places, in our home. So we every day thank you to them. And uh, we call it Kim Il-sung is father and the work party is our mother. So we didn't, we don't believe too much and we don't love to my uh, biology father and mother. You know, that is, uh, uh, and the school is learned always uh, Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il's history. That is a fake history, but we learned that. So we thought that socialism is a great country in our world and nothing to envy. So it's, so it's amazing to hear that from your sort of first-hand experience. We can only hear it because you managed to to leave North Korea, as I mentioned in the introduction, not once but twice. Talk us through what happened when you when you decided to try and leave. It's early 1990s. Government stopped our distributions, so government told to us it is America problems because they sanctions. So that's why. Government didn't buy any food, so we believed that. But there is uh, many years they didn't give to us any rice, so people started starving. So only 1996, my uncle died of starvation in front of me, and then I saw many dead bodies in the street, and we every day heard that neighbors died and some students died, my friends died. That's a really horrible time to us. And then my younger brother also really uh, dangerous way because he was joined the military. So military was the same as is the people. So my father last wish was to save my younger brother. So that's why I left North Korea and abandoned my illness father alone in cold dining room. So I still don't know the, when my father passed away and where he's buried. So... That must that have been is, an extraordinary thing to have, to have decided to do, to, to, to leave your father. And I know he was sort of encouraging you to do that, hoping that you could, you could find some sort of better life. So you leave behind your father with your, with your brother. What happened? What, describe the moment you, you tried to get out of North Korea. So when I left my brother, uh, I left only one bowel rice and the cleaning clothes next to him. Because if someone finds about my father and gave it to him last year and changed the clothes. But I didn't say goodbye to my father because I talked about the maybe one day we reunited again. So I left because I wanted to save my younger brother. That is my father last week. So we uh, crossed the Tumon River, it's mid the two, midnight to 2 a.m. Uh, and that time it was the winter, it was the February, so winter, and the uh, river is already frozen. So me and the younger brother crossed the border, so we already crossed the halfway, and then we heard that is North Korean soldiers shouted, shouted to us, stop, stop, and then they come fire to us. But we continued to cross the border and arrived in China. So I thought that is maybe China is a green places and bring it to us a new life, but that is a totally different. I mean, that's extraordinary. So it, it's midnight, it's freezing, uh, and you've got North Korean sh- soldiers firing weapons at you, but you both managed to, to cross over into China. Yes, we did, so, yeah. 
and uh, so having managed to do that, like you said, your hopes that China was going to be a, a you know the green the green place that you could you could go and and, and settle in. But I mean, you just had such an awful time in China as well. Explain us, if you can, what what happened once you got to China. But once in China, I was human trafficking. It's not only me; it's all North Korean females. Uh, because it's in China, many smugglers they waited to North Korean females, and then they sold to us. So same as me, I was sold to Chinese man, and then separated my younger brother. Because this man is not accept my younger brother, he said that he worked on me. So after I separated my younger brother, and he also repatriated to North Korea, so I still don't know that he's died or alive. And how? What? What was that like? Having gone through this extraordinary experience of, of making the decision to to leave behind your father, cross the border into into China, hoping for a better life and ending up in being bought and sold by a, by a trafficker and, and, and bought by this man who wouldn't accept, accept your, your brother. Yeah, we lost every hopes, you know, in China. And my life was slavery life because the Chinese family never accepted to us uh, uh, their family members. So I was only uh, just workers or just only sex players in these areas. So in, in this town is five North Korean females, but we never spoke to each other because family members always look after to us. So one day I wanted to give up my life because you know I lost my father and then my younger brother too. So my life was really slavery. But after I find out that I was pregnant, and then I changed my mind because this child is my hope and my family members. So I kept this child. But the Chinese government told me that you abandoned this child, abortions this child, because the government never accepted this child. But I denied it. I denied it. And I kept. And uh, after my child born in China, so i really happy that moment because... I have a family. You've got a family and it's yours. And yeah, but, but then, then what happened? Describe um, how things unfortunately, sadly got worse again. Yeah. Then, you know, the event, my son, uh, three months after is a Chinese man came to me and he told me that he wanted to sold my son because he borrowed a lot of money and lost money gambling. So at first time, stood off and fight these evils. I shouted to man, if you touched my son, I kill you. And then, you know, that every day I work with my, my son, uh, work in outside. But five years after, I also repatriated to North Korea and separated my son. He's alone in China, and then I sent back to North Korea. So we separated both. So you were separated and you were sent back to North Korea, mm-hmm. um, not knowing where your son was. Um, what happened What happened then? How did you manage to get out of North Korea for the second time? Yeah, so once I, I went repatriated to North Korea, I thought that it was North Korea was my home places, you know. So maybe government uh, welcomed to us because the, we left North Korea, the reasons that we wanted to survive. 
But once in North Korea, they never accepted to us human. So that's why they tortured, imprisoned, or executions to us. And we worked in prison, look like animals. You know, we never wash up, and we used the toilet, female and man is together, and no water arrived in our prisons. So one day, my, I was illness, and my leg was problems and swollen, and I didn't work, and my temper is 40 degrees. So I almost dead. So yes, then, you got this. You got this as a sort of infection, wasn't it? In prison. Yes, yeah, yes. Because were, we always you... work in outside without the shoes. Oh wow! And so you got this. But you were sort of really seriously ill, very high temperature, couldn't walk, and so they just threw you out. Yes, yeah. Because they say that you cannot die in prison, die in outside anyway. So that's why they released me. So I was lucky, you know, that is lucky. I say that is lucky, yeah. So then after I met the brokers again and myself human trafficking to China because I had no money and my condition is still the bad. But my son is with me in China, you know. United is really important source for me. So that is my strength, you know. So myself human trafficking with China again but then we uh, escaped North Korea again. So how do you how do you do that? So you've you've been you've been thrown out of prison basically to die because your infection is so bad you can barely walk. How do you then get not only well again, uh, but also to then get out of North Korea again? What happened this time? Uh, when I lived in North Korea, when I lived in prison. I thought about only my son. I never think about anything, you know, food or something else. I only talked about, about my son because I wanted to be united. I never lost my family again. So that is I survived. And also the second time is the same, is united my son. And how to survive. And I want to tell these stories to outside people because many people don't know about the inside North Korea. Yeah, no, and I think that's why it's it's so um, fascinating to to uh, be able to hear your story direct from you. So you managed to get back to China, and you did manage. The, the good news from this is you did manage to find your son. Yes, yeah, yeah. I find my son, but it's, you know that I promised the broker myself human trafficking. So once in China, I told to him I want to call my son once, but first he denied it because he said that you already promised to me human trafficking here. But uh, I once in China, when we got to the taxi, I helped uh, all people. Because in China, usually many people, they find out the North Koreans. Because if they contacted police and North Koreans and the government paid money to them. So nowadays, many Chinese people, they find out the North Koreans. This money is better than their salaries. So I helped them is on the taxi and then after he said that you had to call your son. So when I called my son, and he first twice he denied it, he opened, opened. And the third times I said that his son is mom. And then my son is only one word, mom. And he cried, cried. So everyone is hurt and everyone is cried. So after he said that his Yesterday, you saved my life. So today, I saved your life. You have to go and reunite your son. 
So I really thank you to him. And then I met my son in, in 2005. You, you got your son back in 2005. Yeah. And, um, and met your now husband too. Yes, yeah. I met my husband is in Mongolia border. border. So because it's, me and my son wanted to leave China because China is not a safe country. And if I repatriated to North Korea, I could be died, you know, and then I never responsibly care about my son. So I wanted to leave this country and wanted to go South Korea, but our journey is all failed, you know, that is really dangerous. So in Beijing, we met now nine North Korean uh, refugees. So all people is the same. They wanted to go free countries. So we crossed the, the Mongolia border, Chinese border to Mongolia, because Mongolia also one of the one another South Korea embassy in there. So we crossed the border China, and the Chinese border is really uh, strong fences, two meter fences, and then Chinese policies around the up and down. They looked up uh, someone is across the border. So all people ran out, but me and my son is continued to walk. Then I found out that is a Chinese police car. That's right, it came to us. So that time it was one man came to us and he barked to my son and holding my hand. And we ran and crossed the second border and then arrived in Mongolia. So this man is saved me and my younger, my son. And then, you know, I very love to him. Of course. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's the first time. It's uh, I. I am female. It's the first time I knew that what mean is the love. I tested that time. I and and anyone listening to your story could have, after everything you went through to find someone who comes along and holds your hand and helps you and your son is is yeah. I can I can see how how he became your husband. Before we talk in a moment to how you ended up then in the UK and doing what you're doing now. Uh, lots of people when they think about North Korea and Kim Jong Un. He's a bit of a figure of fun, you know, President Trump calling him little rocket man and all that sort of stuff. And it's all a bit of a joke. But the story that you tell tells us that life in North Korea really isn't a joke, is it? Yeah, that's uh, that's really uh, strange. Because the, when I came to the UK, many people don't know the, where is North Korea. Some people talked about that is a part of South Korea, some of the town or province. They never knew that. But after 2013, when uh, Sony Picture published the movie, the interview, and after uh, Trump and Kim Jong-un met, and they usually Twitter is a rocket man, love, letter, <laughs> yeah, you know, missiles. Then after many people knew that is North Korea, but still they don't know there is people like, because all totally invisible, because the media is always published about the politics, and only nuclear weapons. They always forget our people. Okay, so let's talk about then how you've ended up in the UK uh, and now standing for election. I mean, the most ultimate sort of rebuttal to to life in North Korea is to, to leave North Korea and then run, run for uh, election in an open and fair uh, democracy. How did you end up in Bowie? Oh, you know, the people usually talk to about that is hell and heaven. But these two words come from only Bibles, and they don't know the, uh, these meanings. But you know that I left here and now live in heaven. So this country gives me always its brief hours and gratitude to everyday life. So I still uh, 
never forget about this moment because when I got the visa from home office, and the home office told me that your family is safe this country. So that is really bruised tears and first I've tested my political freedoms in here. So I now stand up for these elections because the first reason, reason that is that British people accept the refugees and immigrants in here and welcome to the here and they gave to us many opportunities and challenges and they always helped me. So I wanted to help these societies. So that's why I stand up. And the second reason that is Britain teaching to us what is a democracy and what is human. And also they teaching to me democracy needs the participation, the politics. So if we don't know the politics, we never step up in our freedom's life. And the third one, you know, there's many people shocked me because I was a human rights activist, but I bought conservatives. So many human rights activists and the reporters, they shocked me because they told me that conservatives, uh, discriminations, refugees and immigrants, but why you choose conservatives? So when I heard that, that is really shocked because racism, this comes from socialism and the communism uh, ideologies because they divided our individuals. You know, there is a people never discrimination to us. It's all UK people welcome to us. So that is really important. So I want to teach it to them is that we people never discriminations on other people. And uh, I want to uh, tell the refugees, think about that. Who are you? And uh, why you left your hometown. So that's why I stand up. That's why you're standing for election. And like so you said, you're standing as a conservative in Berry. What, uh, how, how is it when you're sort of out and about and you're, you're listening to people's problems? Because there must be a point, if, you're, if you are leafleting or being able to speak to people, obviously from a safe distance and all that sort of thing, people start talking about their problems, you know, for the local council in Bury. <laughs> they pale into insignificance compared to everything that you've been through. So how do you sort of, you know, whether it's not the bins being collected or the potholes or the you know the 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 schools whatever it might be how do you how do you uh, relate to those issues when people are raising them you know the, i lived in here 13 years is it uh, so i knew that is uh, my neighbors you know that i always around the here so i knew that is many people problems and i usually talked about the bias one or why does it uh, many lobbies is outside because uh, it's a children played outside so that is really dirty and uh, some people talked about the environment but they never talked about the recyclings because that is all together and always they divided environmental recyclings and there's find jobs they always divided but that is all including the one thing and you know the listening is really important because local people always shouted to us, but many the local councillors they never listened to the, our voices. So myself victims and I witness also human rights activities, and I heard many voices uh, carefully because that is really important. So my big issue is a good listener, you know, and community with people. Good listener, you definitely need that in politics. And what about is this just the start? You're you're wanting to be a councillor. Have you got um, greater political ambitions? Do you want to be prime minister one day? 
Oh no, I never talked about that is the prime minister or something <laughs> that. Yeah, because it's a, a local election. That is not politicians. That is a community leaders. And I wanted to know that this society because I am now British citizens. So if we don't know that that is a community, I never bring the happiness and the freedom life in here. So that's why I joined. So I never talked about that as uh, MPs or prime minister. <laughs> <laughs> you don't fancy, don't fancy doing that. Yeah. And if you've spoken, if you've spoken to Boris Johnson, is it does he know about your story? Oh no, yet, but I think that he already heard. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, he also uh, maybe... proud me. And you know, the many refugees and immigrants already heard my stories. Yeah, so, no, which is why we yeah. wanted to, which is why we wanted to tell it on yeah, the on the program yeah. as well. And if if Boris Johnson, if you do get to speak to Boris Johnson one day, and he asks, what should Britain be doing in relation to uh, North Korea? What what would you like to see happen? Is there anything that a country like Britain can do to try and improve uh, lives for for all those people that you left behind? Yeah, it's a diplomatic is also important in many countries, but North Korea is most important is human rights issues because many 75 years is North Korean people's invisible in our world. So if our government, I know that is the, our government is still the work, really hard work to North Korea. So I want to say that is my prime minister, think people first, because they are all same as human and they all, it's the same as me. They all find the happiness, freedom in here. And my country people dream is not too big. They dream is one day, they family united and have a dinner one table. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via smart speaker or on the Times radio app. If you want to read more about all of the stories that we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.